Hello, and welcome to the SIDCAST, the official podcast of the Inter-American Defense College located at historic Fort Leslie J. McNair in Washington, D.C. The IADC is the educational entity of the Inter-American Defense Board, an independent body of the Organization of American States. The OAS formally recognizes the college as the hemispheric standard for joint interagency, intergovernmental, and multinational security and defense education. The SIDCAST affords us the opportunity to share thought-provoking ideas from experts on hemispheric solutions to hemispheric problems. As our master's curriculum is delivered in the four official languages of the OAS, episodes are recorded in the native language of our guests. We thank you for joining us, and now, on to the program. Today, we're excited to kick off Season 2 of our podcast from our brand new studio, Our host for this groundbreaking episode is Major Tahina Montoya. Major Montoya is an Air Force Reserves Intelligence Officer, where she is a Strategic Regional Analyst at the Defense Intelligence Agency. She is also a Women in International Security Next Generation Fellow. Now, without further ado, over to you, Tahina. As a former staff member of the IEDC, it is so exciting to be back and to be doing so as a host of this episode. I'm especially looking forward to our discussion today, which centers on a topic near and dear to my heart, one that thankfully, through the hard work of many allies, garners more and more attention, women, peace, and security. It's also very timely given that this week, the IADC is hosting a landmark gender integration and perspectives in the armed forces elective to 24 students from 12 countries. Established in partnership with Canada's Directorate of Military Training and Cooperation, championed by Major General James Taylor, and supported by U.S. Southcom's Women, Peace, and Security Program through their gender focal point at the IADC, a longtime staff member, Frida Garcia. Their last keynote lecturer is an outstanding WPS champion and one who is no stranger to podcasting about it. She is Southcom's Chief of the Women, Peace, and Security Program, and our guest today, Lieutenant Colonel Dulia Turner. Lieutenant Colonel Dulia Turner enlisted in the United States Air Force in 1997 and served various assignments as a combat weather observer, supporting Army helicopters, and as assistant forecaster at Cape Canaveral in support of shuttle operations. Lieutenant Colonel Turner commissioned in 2005 as a meteorologist and as a scientist has held numerous assignments, which included overseeing weather operations in support of President Obama's Air Force One. In 2015, she graduated from the Naval Postgraduate School, where she earned a Master of Arts in Security Studies with distinction. And at Southern Command, Lieutenant Colonel Turner has served as a country desk officer, branch chief for policy, campaign planner, and executive officer for the civilian deputy commander. She has also deployed in support of Operation Allied Force in Bosnia and to Afghanistan in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. Hi, Lieutenant Colonel Turner. Thank you so much for being with us here today, ma'am. What an opportune time, giving the gender course that is going on as we speak um, and the increasing attention that is being given to women, peace and security. I can't think of a better way to kick off this new season. 
Thank you so much. It is my pleasure. And I also want to take this opportunity right off the bat to congratulate the Inter-American Defense College, its students and its leadership for having this amazing new course for, yes, for women is an elective for women, peace and security. Uh, just amazing. So I'm delighted to be here in this podcast as well, which it highlights in this episode, Women, Peace and Security, but really uh, very happy that the Inter-American Defense College is, is taking the lead now. Thank you, ma'am. And thanks for the shout out of uh, the Inter-American Defense College. As a former staff member, I am very jealous that the course is going on when I'm not there anymore. And so I'm really looking forward to maybe being able to be there in person to take the course. Um, but we're going to get started. I have lots of questions and we don't have enough time to get to everything that I want to today. So, um, ma'am, could you give us a little bit of a background on the Southcom WPS program? So our office, our program, Women, Peace and Security Program at Southcom, as it stands, it was established two years ago when my teammate, uh, she's a lawyer and she's a gender analyst and myself, started under uh, Admir um, Admiral Fowler. And it became a priority. So we are organized under the command group. We report to our civilian deputy, to the commander, Ambassador Mains, and um, our commander. And for the past two years, we have been basically translating the national strategy, the defense strategy into operations, action, activities, and investments in the Southcom area of operation AOR. Now, uh, we continue to do that. We have a new commander, uh, General Laura Richardson. So um, under her guidance, we continue to be strong in the women, peace, and security realm. We continue to engage with our partners. And the ultimate goal that we want is to see the meaningful inclusion of women in security and defense, not only within our own forces, but also with our partners across the Western Hemisphere. Thank you so much. That's a really great summary of kind of the two-year history, um, which, you know, when you hear two years, you think not a long time, but clearly a lot has been happening and Southcom has been really making headway on making sure WPS is, uh, is moving forward. I wanted to learn a little bit more about how you came about becoming chief of the WPS program. Sure. So I had the opportunity of traveling to Brazil for one of the regional conferences that was taking place there. And I, at the time, was working for Ambassador Ayalde. And I was traveling with her and I saw a presentation on women, peace and security. And really, I just thought that it was amazing that we had, you know, we we're at the beginning stages of this effort. And that was fascinating. So I reached to some of the presenters and I learned a little bit more. And at the time, we had someone that was doing the women, peace and security efforts, more of a temporary position. And um, she told me that they were looking for someone full time. So I just uh, was really intrigued. I started to learn more and more and uh, had an opportunity to basically knock on Admiral, Admiral Fowler's door and say, sir, I know you're looking for someone to run your women, peace and security program. And uh, here is my information. I'll love to, to work and, and do this, you know, for you, for the command, for all of us. And that unfolded, you know, there were other people and there was a selection process interview and here we are. So it was a wonderful opportunity. That's awesome. And I, I love how you kind of took the initiative to um, put yourself out there and um, kind of go for what you wanted. I think that speaks a lot to the action piece that you were addressing before. Um, and so as chief, now you're, you're the chief of the WPS program at Southcom, what do you do in that capacity? Sure. So we 
have many problems to solve and we have a lot of opportunity to foster the agenda of women, peace and security. And I just want to start saying that Women, Peace and Security as a program is definitely not only about women, it's about both men and women and how we can really use the full potential of our human capital. And that's the bottom line. And what we're doing, I mean, starting from inception is one, understanding the operational environment when it comes to women, peace and security. We wanted to know, and we still do because we don't have all of the answers yet, but we want to know what our partners are doing about women, peace and security. What are the percentages of women serving? What are some of the barriers? What are some of the opportunities? And then doing some self-reflection on where we are, where we are, and where we want to go. We look at our partners individually as, as their military and defense forces, and we see where we can amplify the efforts. Where can we move the needle? So maybe with some countries, they want to have a um, a, a program that's similar to our program for sexual violence prevention. Uh, another program might be they want to have more recruiting or develop their force. So we are looking at different countries and doing different things with each one of them that we feel can foster the meaningful inclusion of women in our security and defense forces. I love that you mentioned and highlighted that women, peace and security efforts is not exclusively about women. I think it's it's um, something that a lot of people who haven't been introduced to women, peace and security as a concept, it's easy to misconstrue. And I, I totally get why, right? Because women is in the title. So I think it's very important that you, you mentioned that it's important to have men equally involved and for that matter, people of all uh, gender expressions as allies to really move this initiative forward. And I also really like the piece that it's not like the U.S. is going in there and trying to impose itself. I think that's a very important um, kind of idea to get across that every situ every country, every situation is very different and it's not a one size fits all. Um, just because it worked in one particular scenario in a particular country doesn't mean it, it will it will have the same effects in another country's. Now that you've had two years as chief of the program, what would you say your expectations were going into um, the role and how has that changed since taking the seat? You know, when we are starting a program, you really can shape it in any way that 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 we want and i and at first you know we, we started the program and we had all these amazing ambitions to go all over the hemisphere and then covid happened um so that's another curveball we're learning and then oh no now covid but i must say that we were very quick to adapt so immediately we started doing virtual engagements understanding how we can uh, contribute to the conversation and, and engaging. And, and while it's always better to have a handshake and eyeball to eyeball, I think we have been able to accomplish a lot in strengthening our relationships with our partners, a lot in terms of sharing our democratic values to share this important message that human capital must be used at its full potential. And we cannot just focus on developing men or even sometimes we don't even focus, just do it because that's how we have been doing for a long time but then open and amplifying the lenses. So in this past two years, we have been through virtual engagements, done a whole lot. Now that we are opening a little bit more to travel, it's been wonderful to meet our partners. And, you know, in exactly what you said, we're not imposing to them what we think is right. Truly is an exchange. We have learned so much. I think it's really humbling how much our partners are doing and how we can learn from them. Uh, and, and I think the future is very promising. This last two years, we, we have come a long way. I think most people didn't even understand what women, peace and security was. And, and I would attempt to say that now, you know, there's a better understanding of the program.
I can only imagine how um, empowering and intimidating equally as much it was to take on kind of a new role and kind of have what you said, like a completely blank slate um, and all the opportunities that presented. But to your point, COVID hit. And um, although I always say that there's a lot of negative things that came from COVID and a lot of a lot of people who have been struggling immensely, and I definitely don't want to um, diminish that because COVID has definitely impacted us all. But I think in in something in, as it relates to WPS, which we're talking about today, I think it brought us together in some some instances, and it kind of leveled the playing field where it allowed us to focus on things like this from from a very similar perspective. We're all struggling together, we're all in it together, and we're all um, learning from this crazy experience that is a worldwide pandemic. And so you you mentioned all these opportunities to finally engage, right? So, so much, two years almost, right? Since you took the seat where you're engaging virtually, but meeting, finally starting to get to meet people face-to-face, which I think also makes that meeting face-to-face more genuine since you've had these conversations on a virtual platform for so long. Um, could you maybe give us some concrete examples of what you've seen on the ground of good implementation of women, peace, and security in the AOR, in Southcom, what it looks like? Sure. I think um, a great example, a most recent example right now, Jamaica, that had already rolled out a gender optimization policy, now has a new child that is a woman. And by the way, she was in our podcast about two years ago. She was our sec- on our second episode. And you know, and now she's a child. So it's building this relationship with our partners. But really, it, the credit goes entirely to Jamaica. They're focusing on gender optimization. It's really interesting because they talk about the role of men and women. This is 25% of their their courses, their trainings, their workshops. 25% of the attendees must be either gender. So it balances out. And I, in our engagement in, in, in Jamaica, we just learned that some of the career fields that were typically women or men now are flipping. So we see more men in administrative roles, women in other more operational roles. And, and that just is wonderful, a wonderful reflection of the human potential and not really segregating or, or limiting values and, and potential and, and talent. Uh, to me, that's a perfect example there of how we can go. And of course, I would say, attempt to say that this is not a perfect way. There's no perfect way, but it's an amazing example. We see um, Argentina, for instance, that has courses of gender and in their academies. It's amazing. And we, we, we're learning a lot. Pilots uh, in Honduras. We just visit Tolomita in Colombia. Amazing women pilots who are fully capable, extraordinary. And uh, and then in our own, right, we have here now uh, General Richardson, who's an amazing role model whose message is not that we need to make room for women, whose message is we must allow talent to blossom. If it's a man or a woman, I mean, okay. But the fact is that talent does not have gender. and She's not our commander because she's a woman, but because she's a very talented and professional soldier. Um, and, and that's how we can shape the narrative. And that's really the transparency of this program is that is about talent management. I'm going to take with me, we must allow talent to blossom and talent does not have gender. I can't think of... um 
a more powerful message. And all the examples you gave, um, the first thing I thought of was how a lot of the programs you talked about, you know, gender optimization and gender courses that are in the academies in Argentina, those are things that um, points that the U.S. can also really, you know, we can learn from that. Some of the pushback that I've seen or heard or read talks about, you know, you can't force numbers, but I also am a big proponent of you have to start with deliberate change in order to get to the point where the change is more organic and happens more naturally. So, ma'am, shifting gears a little bit, in 2004, the United Nations Security Council encouraged national-level implementation of UNSCR 1325, which is a landmark re uh, resolution of women, peace, and security, encouraging the development of national action plans. I've always wondered, how do national action plans relate to your work within the AOR? Mm -hmm. So, AOR being the heir of operations for the United States Southern Command, which is all the way from south of Mexico to Argentina and the Caribbean. Um, the national action plans are extremely important for to send a message and to institutionalize change within a country. One thing that's important to highlight is that the level that a national action plan takes is at the highest levels of government. And what we're trying to do in the program is translate those big pieces of you know, institutionalized documents and, 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 and strategies into granular actions that drive results. So while I value and admire the countries that have the national action plans, when I'm working in the lane of security and defense, I actually can see a lot of change and a lot of positive movement from countries that don't even have a national action plan. We're working, they are working towards that as a nation, but we are navigating the lane of defense and security. So I am interested in knowing what are the mechanisms for recruiting women, retaining, ascending, training, maternity leave, you know, prevention of gender or sexual based violence. Those are the things that I'm looking. So as you can imagine, a national action plan is so big and I, my targets are more granular. So I applaud the national action plans. I think they're an amazing statement. A lot of them come with um, resources, but at my level in the lane of national of security and defense, I am looking at, I'm looking at more granular objectives, if it makes sense. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And I, I've always wondered how, what the connection was between the two. And I, I almost think it's wonderful that your work in WPS is not affected by a country's national action plan or lack thereof. And, and a lot of times too, um, we work with the countries and we want to see, as I mentioned, the, the local policies. Right. So there is there is, of course, a connection. Having an action action plan is an amazing thing. And we should all be striving towards that. Um, but we are looking, as I mentioned, to the very specific actions that a defense and military can take. So not to discount the importance of the national action plans. I think it brings the United Nations Security Council resolution to life, having countries that subscribe and, and embrace um, the efforts. Um, but it's a little bit different. We're like at the lower levels. Ma'am, and you mentioned that uh, as some examples of what you do focus on at the at the more granular levels include um, recruitment and uh, development of of women within the services. How much of what you do translates to operations? So operationalizing women, peace, and security is that something you touch on or not? Not at all. No, of course we do because this is just not a 
brilliant, great idea that we just talk about. I mean, it needs to be translated into action and operationalizing women. What does that mean to us as well? We want to know, do, do this country or our country, we're looking at things such as, are there any jobs that exclude women operationally, combat, border security, uh, any types of drills. And then we want to foster the idea that without compromising standards to open opportunities for women who qualify. I don't think any woman in uniform, and you can attest to that, we don't want to be uh, given any concessions or, or, or given any favors. We want to serve with our brothers and sisters in uniform in, in an equal way. Uh, so it's really not lowering the standards, but opening the opportunity. So that's one way. When we look at international military education and training programs that we have here in the United States and we work with our partners, we want to know and we do look at numbers to see how many women are nominated by their countries and how many come to attend our courses. And we work with the school. So, of course, I'm going to give here a shout out to the Inter-American Defense College that is looking into that very seriously. I met with General Taylor and, and he has a, a, you know, he has a vision for the inclusion of women. And to me, that's amazing. And we need to do this throughout all of our military schools and, and understanding that this is an evolution. So, you know, we have to work. Sometimes the schools require languages or certain skills. So that's why training comes much earlier than these big opportunities. It's really giving, you know, the opening the lenses so we can build and, and have women and men who are, perfect to these training opportunities and then they return to their countries and the sky is the limit it's amazing so that those are some examples on how we're looking um at, at actions specific actions so of course we're focusing predominantly in the southcom aor uh being a first generation colombian american i'm very familiar and proud of our culture and i've also been very fortunate to experience working um in country, in several countries, including where I live right now in Panama. Um, but a lot of our listeners might not be as familiar with the Southcom AOR and might be curious about WPS as it relates to Latino or Hispanic culture. And so some, you know, I was wondering, can you talk a little bit about how receptive countries in the Southcom AOR have been um, to the WPS program and its initiatives? Yes. And, and I think I, you know, I'm a scientist, my background is in science as a meteorologist, but I don't have a, I, I cannot scientifically explain why, but I can tell you that there is like how countries are receiving women, peace and security initiatives is really amazing. And, and it also goes to tell that this whole idea of the machismo, of course, uh, I think exists. I, let's be honest, it's, it's in the United States too. But we also should not underestimate our partners. Our hemisphere has had women presidents. We see women rising through the ranks, ministry, ministers of defense, now uh, a chief of defense, presidents, uh, you know, the new generals are coming across. So... It, there is a mindset that's changing, and, and, and I think this goes hand in hand. And again, women, peace, and security is, uh, you know, uh, uh, it is the right thing to do. It's also the smart thing to do. Strategically and operationally, this is the right thing to do. No leader in the world, men or women, want to make a decision based on 50% of the information. And if you exclude the perspective of women, um, you are really not getting the entire picture. So what we do... With this inclusion, we help decrease 
operational and strategic blind spots and increase mission effectiveness. That's the bottom line, right? Activism is great, but it doesn't belong in the military. Uh, you know, like uh, like uh, emotions and, and having this passion is amazing, but we are very pragmatic because in the military and defense, we go through specific objectives. And that's what we're trying to do. I mean, at the end of the day, sure, everybody feels good about it. At least we do. <laughs> but it goes, it's even more than that. It's about feeling good, but doing the right and the smart thing to do. Um, so it, it, it is really viable for the military and the security forces to think in those terms. Yeah, I, I thank you for bringing up the the point about the stereotypical machista point of view that, you know, is um, commonly referenced, I guess you can say, when it comes to Latino and Hispanic culture. Um, I, I liked your point about it, in, being inclusive of 50% of the population, you know, um, not only is it important for mission um, to make sure we're including as many people, uh, as many qualified people as possible within our services, but then it's also important to to make sure that the military, our Air Force, is reflective of who we're trying to serve. And it's going to be really hard to do that if, and, and not just, especially in this case, we're talking about women and gender as a whole, but we're talking about making sure that it's representative of all sorts of diversity, ethnicities and religions. And, and so I, I appreciate um, your point on the 50% of the population. Um, in some instances, so, even more in some countries. And here's another point, sorry, that I, I think is important to make too. When we talk about women, peace and security, a lot of times we're talking about protecting vulnerable populations during crisis. And of course, it's been documented that women and girls suffer uh, differently through crisis. But there are three perspectives here that for any strategic leader uh, is a must to understand in terms of gender and women. Women, we have three roles. Uh, the one is, of course, you know, the three perspectives, I would say, not roles, but three perspectives. One is from a perspective of a vulnerable person that needs the protection. Sure, that's, that's a fact. Two is also a fact that women can also be perpetrators, criminals, parts of uh, the transnational crime networks. And if we, if we don't understand that, we're really here dealing with a huge operational gap. And three, we're also defenders and protectors. So to get the entire picture, we cannot disregard any of that. And then now, how does that translate in operations? Is literally, you know, when we seize a boat, perhaps with drugs, is understanding that not every woman is being trafficked, perhaps. That maybe not every, you see what I'm getting to is we really have to understand these different perspectives and that way we can address shared issues, complex issues, hemispheric issues in a more effective way by having this integrative gender perspective. Yeah, I'm going to take a quote from uh, Major General Taylor, my former boss, um, is he, he really pushes the idea that complex problems require complex solutions. And I think that speaks to your point exactly. Um, I loved that you mentioned the three perspectives. I really do think that society at large has really mastered seeing women as um, being vulnerable, but they have not uh, really focused on the other two, which is, you know, women being defenders. And I think we're, we're making some headway on that through great programs like Women, Peace and Security um, and efforts that you're leading. But then also the perpetrators piece. And to your point, there is a huge gap because, because of that lens that... Um, 
yeah, that lens that people walk into a situation that could be negative or um, threatening and they automatically assume that the woman is the victim. And that for different reasons, that affects mission as well. And that affects operations equally as much. Um, the example I think of in relation to Southcom is um, the FARC, right? When they did a lot of DDR efforts to demobilize the, the FARC, which were great efforts, they completely forgot about the women perpetrators or or um, I don't want to say completely forgot, but um, a lot of the efforts were developing on reintegration of men FARC members, but not the women. And so those women were left kind of up in the air, not sure how to reiterate, reintegrate back into society. So I appreciate those three points. Um, it's it's on point, I guess I could say. So I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot. Um, what would you say the top three successes of the program have been thus far? Sure. Um, I think number one is awareness, right? Like we are in the business of sharing how this is important and why this is important. WPS, I must be clear, is not something we do, but how we think. And I think we have been successful, continue to be successful in, in changing mindsets. Because once the mindset changes, where there were no resources, there is now. Or there were no resources, there is resourcefulness. And then we can see then what that mindset translates into results. So I think that's probably our number one success. Our number two success, I think, is really developing what we call our gender focal point network. So uh, this is my full-time job, but we have been aggressively working towards developing individuals that understand the gender perspective, that understand the Women, Peace, and Security program, and then they go back to their functional areas, being personnel, logistics, intelligence, academia, and they find opportunities to leverage where we can integrate WPS. And those are things that I couldn't do, and only an intel officer would know how this can happen and when it could happen. So that's the importance of having this wide network. And then going beyond U.S., then it's developing this network with our partners. And 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 then I think that's our th third and probably most important um, success is gaining the support, gaining the partnerships, and really seeing countries now developing their own gender programs, their own women, peace, and security programs, really finding in what terms they can Im amplify this. And, and of course they can do in our own, but we can do in our own too, but it's always better when we do it together. That's the way to really get the success. So I would say our biggest, biggest success, success is uh, our ability to communicate and work with our partners. The partnership is unmatched. That's wonderful to hear. Um, again, not only because of my bias towards the Southcom era, um, but also um, to know that it's, it's all heading in a very positive direction. So probably a not as easy question to answer. Um, what would you say are the top three challenges? I would probably start in the same way, right? Is the awareness. So <laughs> it's, it's our biggest success and it's also our biggest challenge is our focus as well is we want everyone to understand and to really, uh, you know, when, when, when we are sharing women, peace and security, I'm sure people would ask, oh, what is in there for me? And understanding the strategic and operational advantages for anyone in uniform is a benefit. So it's really going from person to person saying, okay, you're, you, this is what your function, you're a pilot, you're a navigator, you're a mechanic, and this is how this can help. This is how this vision in crisis and, in, in, you know, in, in peacetimes and in, in building, etc. So 
I would say that's one challenge. Um, a second challenge, I think, is gaining the support. It has been, and I think this is one that we can easily overcome and we're in the process, is that we see, at least from my perspective, I see uh, a lot of support from our most senior leaders. And, and to me, that's um, it, it's not shocking because they manage people. They have this strategic understanding of what we're trying to do. So when we talk in terms of the advantages of women, peace and security is a no brainer. And then the new generation, the new, you know, the younger uh, men and women who are joining or supporting our military, um, they they don't even think in those terms. I mean, it's really amazing to see how they see, you know, women and men like it, it, all those stereotype, the stereotypical roles and 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 cultural barriers are a lot a lot less dramatic with the new generation. So what I see a barrier sometimes is in the middle level management is, you know, is the, is the man or the woman who's who served for 20, 30 years and is high in rank or now works as a civilian and never really had an opportunity to work side to side to a woman or a, a many women and truly do not even understand how that dynamic works. And I, I had, I have frank conversations all the time. Uh, and that I think that's a, you know a benefit of this program is that we can have transparent conversations. And I had someone who I have a lot of respect for saying, "Hey, when I was in uniform, I never fought next to a woman. In fact, if I had to, I probably would feel I had to protect her. So it's a little bit awkward for me to have to think in those terms. But it doesn't mean that you know we cannot. Mind is so you know neuroscience says that we we can always change uh, who we are, and I think that's the process of change. So the middle management, the mindset of the middle management, um, I would say is 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 a is a little bit of a challenge which we're overcoming. And with that being said, I must say there are also lots of champions at this level. So let's be honest. And I think a third challenge is is resources. Right? I mean, talking is wonderful. But we need to be in places. We need to have the resources to develop the, to develop the the the, the mechanisms. We need to have barracks with you know, in uh, training buildings with both men and women showers and bathrooms. And you know, those are the more that takes money to and resources and takes people to do this. So those are probably the three challenges that I could identify right now. You mentioned middle management and and the challenges that come with that. Um, I also think uh, to your point about having conversations, change is not going to happen overnight. And those tough conversations, I think, are necessary in order to to drive that change. So even if they're rough or maybe uncomfortable conversations, I think it's it's a step in the right direction um, to make sure that that change is happening. And then the resource bit, you can't do anything without resources. So I appreciate your comment on that. So a lot of the questions thus far I've been asking about relate to Southcom at large and your efforts um, as chief of the Women, Peace, and Security Program. But I wanted to ask some questions that some of our listeners might be thinking of. So what would you say to those in the audience that think, why WPS? Like, why does it even matter? Oh, I think we addressed it throughout, right? It is, it is a, is it? In terms of defense and security, this is operationally sound. It's the smart thing to do. So this is the why. The why is that we understand that the population is about 50% women, 50% men. That, you know, we there's so many whys. There are studies that reflect that in, in societies, not only in military organizations, but in societies where women have a more equitable role, 
those societies are more stable, less corrupt, uh, have even better welfare and, you know, for the population. So, I mean, I can go on and on and on of why WPS matters. It matters because we are operating in the human domain and we're dealing with 100% of the population, only half of it. I really liked how you said, like, operating in the human domain. I think that's um, something worth ca uh, capturing. And I think they also mention human capital. I think it's often referred to as human capital. And I also really loved your piece on how including women translates to more effective nations and more successful nations. And um, I'm sure we could talk about that in itself for hours on end. Um, what would you say um, are some of the resources that you would recommend for someone who is interested in learning more about women, peace and security, but maybe it's the first time hearing about it? Well, I'm going to be biased here and I'm going to direct everyone to visit southcom.mil WPS slash WPS. Or you can just Google Southcom space WPS and you will come to our page there wonderful resources in there to include our podcast so you can hear we have now nine episodes you're welcome to listen to it and we have also some important foundational documents that you can study and i think that's probably going to give anybody who wants to learn a little bit more uh, a good overview of the women peace and security and how we approach that in our hemisphere thank you ma'am and thank you for um, sharing those great resources and lastly, I know I hate that our time went by so fast. I feel like I could sit here for hours on end, but what is the biggest takeaway you'd like today's audience to walk away with? I think I mentioned that earlier, so I'm just going to bring it home again. Women, Peace and Security is definitely not exclusive of women. It's rather inclusive of women and men. It, it really takes all of us to make our militaries the most effective, our nations the most stable, our democracies the most striving. It takes everyone, both men and women, and that's the bottom line. Thank you so much, ma'am. Thank you for your time today. And I know how busy you've been as of late, especially since you can start traveling in person. We really appreciate your time. Um, I especially joined learning about your role as chief of the WPS program in Southcom and how your capacity translates to national action plans and how it relates to them, um, how WPS is implemented specifically in the Southcom AOR, the successes and the challenges, and then also giving a lot of um, great resources and advice for the audience that's listening today who maybe haven't heard so much about women, peace, and security. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode. We hope that you will subscribe and join us as we share more insights and explore sustainable hemispheric solutions. This podcast is a production of the Inter-American Defense College. The host, guests, and IADC team receive no financial benefits for their participation. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the IADC. To learn more about the college, please visit us at iadc.edu.